few years back, uh, we had a young man came to our church who had never been in a church before, ever. He had never been exposed to a church, never heard anything about church, had never seen the inside of a Bible, knew absolutely nothing about faith. But he was living with a girl who had some sort of Christian background, and she eventually says, I want to go to church. And so he agreed to go with her, and they visit a few churches, and finally he told her, you know, I just can't go with you unless we go back to that vineyard church. That's the only one I can stand to go to. <laughs> so they started coming back to the vineyard on a regular basis. And don't you know it, he encountered Jesus in a big way. And it was just like a whole new life for him. Which actually caused some problems for her, but it worked out all in the end. Anyway, about three months later, four months later, he calls me one day. And he says, I got to come in and talk to you. And so he, he sits down and he says, I heard that there were different kinds of Christians. I heard there's some kind of Christians called Catholics and there's some kind of Christians called Protestants. What is that? So I started trying to explain, well, you know, we were all just one kind of Christian at one time. And I start going through this sort of a church history thing. And he, he gets impatient with it pretty quick. And he says, so what kind of Christian am I? My eye? <laughs> well, that wasn't a short answer either. It was like, <laughs> well, you know, here at the vineyard, we're... we're we're kind of like this group this way, and we're kind of like this other group this other way, and we're kind of like this other group this other way, and we're kind of like this other group, you know, there's like not a short answer to that question. And he looks at me like really confused, and then finally he's got this sort of light bulb look, and he says, oh, I get it. I'm a vineyard kind of Christian. <laughs> <laughs> but it made me realize, of course, that it's difficult to know who you are if you don't know where you came from. And we need to know where, who we are. And so we need to know where we came from. So what I'm doing is something a little different, which is, in essence, an abbreviated and simplified uh, trek through the history of the Christian church with the end and, and this is my end is to explain what does it mean to be a vineyard kind of Christian you know how do we fit into the whole flow of what God has done over the last 2,000 years where did we come from because there's actually long historical roots behind the fact that we are sitting here today. And for all of you who are historians, of course, you understand that a bunch of things have to be skipped and some things must be simplified in order to not be sitting here for two months. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's begin. In the beginning, of course, 
Jesus established one Catholic church. The word Catholic means universal. One universal church. There's just one church that was started by Jesus and initiated its sort of mission in the world on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And that church was is has been built by Jesus over the last, you know, 2000 years or so. Uh, he said he would build his church, and the church has been built tremendously uh, to the point where there's at least probably two billion people who would go by the label of Christian, who are in one way or another are saying that they worship Jesus. Um, that church is built on the foundation of the apostles, who are sort of the authorized um, witnesses to the message and... Um, teachings of Jesus. Without the apostles, we wouldn't know anything about Jesus or what he taught or what he said. And Jesus designated certain people as his authorized uh, witnesses to pass this message on to the rest of us. And that's actually where we get the New Testament. It, it's the writings of these authorized witnesses by Jesus telling us, here's the teachings of Jesus and here's the story of Jesus. Um, that's why it has authority, because it represents the passed-on authority of Jesus you know, um, through his witnesses that he gave authority to pass on that message. And there were a couple of keys to the, to the church uh, as established by them. One was, of course, the message of Jesus that he came, that he died, that he rose, risen, rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and also the message of grace. Um, so, um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So that was foundational to the apostolic teaching and to the message that they took to the world, and uh, that was an important key uh, for the church. And the other part was sort of the outworking of that which was exhibited through uh, what you might call the works of signs and wonders or healings and prophecies and, and uh, uh, what we would call deliverances, being set free from demonic influences, were all an important part of the life of the church that Jesus first established. So first thing, um, a couple comments on the first 200 years or so before Constantine. Uh, mostly what most people know about the first 200 years is that Christians were persecuted by the Romans a lot. Um, and that somehow they managed to grow a lot. So uh, just a couple thoughts about that. I don't want to belabor the, the persecution stories because those are more popular. A lot of people know about that. Just to say, first of all, persecution wasn't constant throughout the whole 200 years. It was intermittent um, and not always uh, uniform. Uh, you, you, you might have a situation where Christians are being persecuted in one city, but in another city, the head of that city is ignoring the edicts from Rome and saying, well, I'm not going to do that, you know, so for various reasons. So... It was not ever really uniform or uh, constant. It was more sporadic uh, at different times. Uh, 
many of the early Christians were poor, but also very many of them were wealthy, educated people as well. In fact, some of them people of some means or power, uh, even as early as the book of Acts, um, there are references to people within Caesar's household. So within the emperor's own household are hearing the message of Jesus, following Jesus in different ways. So churches weren't always meeting in catacombs, you know, or cemeteries or hidden places. A lot of times they were meeting in big homes owned by wealthy people where, you know, easily hundreds of people could gather or other kinds of buildings. Um, uh, it, it wasn't all kind of underground. You, you, that would be a, a mistaken impression. Um, also, uh, this Christianity of the first 200 years spread primarily through the cities. So it would, it would uh, you know, people would travel from city to city and they would take the message of Jesus with them and it would grow within that city and then from the city slowly spread out to surrounding villages and farms and whatnot around the key city. So it was more of a city-based faith in the beginning. Um, during these 200 years, most people who are coming to faith are coming by personal conversion or their own experience of Jesus. Uh, each, it's a very personal, individual decision. A lot of times their families might, may or may not come along with them. Their families might not understand the choices that they're making, why they're following this new way. Uh, but it was, so each person had their story. A lot of people are being converted because they have some kind of supernatural experience. But also, people are coming to faith because the church in this period had some really great thinkers. Uh, they had some of the best educated people in the Roman Empire who were writing apologetics for the faith of Jesus and, and writing different uh, articles and, and uh, sort of like tracts, their equivalent of tracts, which would be like long letters, uh, to other educated people about why the faith of Jesus uh, made sense, why it was superior, so forth. So they had some of the best thinkers of their day. Um, they were also increasing because over time, it became clear that these Christians just lived better than everybody else. They, uh, they lived more peaceably with everyone. They took care of all of their own poor and also everybody else's poor. They were very active in taking care of the needs of a place. Many cities considered it a great benefit as some Christians would move to their city because it would mean that they would start taking care of people, which... Uh, otherwise wouldn't happen. Um, so that increased, uh, you know, sort of the stature of, of the church in the Roman Empire and caused people to pay attention to them. But the other thing that sometimes is forgotten or overlooked is that for the first 200 years or so of the church's history, it was a normal thing for churches and individual Christians to experience what we would now call signs and wonders. Healings 
and visions and prophecies and all, were normal in all of them. Um, it, it, it didn't like go away when the last apostle died. It actually continued. And uh, just to kind of back that up, a couple of places where you can see that. There's a document called The Shepherd of Hermas. It was written between 140 and 154 AD. So this is like a century after Jesus. Um, it's a, it's a, nobody knows for sure who wrote it, but it's kind of like a, a book of uh, church guidance or wisdom, how to run a church and how to handle things. And in, and in, the, in the process of uh, writing about that, this book mentions, of course, that there are healers and prophets and, and so forth that are part of the church life and that these things are normal in all the churches. Um, almost all the early church fathers, these are the, the sort of recognized theologians and thinkers of the church in this time period, also report in their own writings miracles and healings that they themselves saw or witnessed and knew about. Um, some of them, for example, Justin the Martyr, who lived between 100 and 167, uh, wrote about that. A uh, man named Tertullian, who lived between 160 and 225. A uh, man named Origen, who lived between 185 and 254. And uh, an important bishop named Cyprian, who lived between 200 and 258. All of them report signs and wonders and healing as normative church life, normative Christian life. Um, and during that time, the church grew for all of those reasons. And by about 300 AD, there were, by most estimates, at least 6 million Christians in the Roman Empire, which would represent at least 10% of the whole population. But in 313, something happened. It actually began just a little before this, but sort of I'm pegging it at 313. A significant thing happened that really changed the church and changed the whole situation for the church dramatically for the next, you know, 1,500 years. What happened is uh, there was, uh, as was not uncommon, when the Roman emperor died, a competition between more than one person for who was going to be the next Roman emperor. And they were in that situation again, and one of the contestants, as it were, for the job of emperor was a man named Constantine. And as he was preparing to go to battle with one of the other contestants, he had a dream. And in the dream... He saw a, a picture of a cross on a shield. And, the, and he heard a voice that said, fight under this ban banner and win. So he took that to, he understood already that symbol to be a symbol for people who follow Jesus. He understood the meaning of the cross as a Christian symbol. And so he immediately had all of his soldiers paint crosses on their shields. And shortly thereafter, in the decisive battle, his army won. 
Whereupon he decided, I think the God of the Christians is a pretty good deal. Now that I'm emperor. And in 313, he issued what's called the Edict of Milan, which basically made uh, the Christian religion the an officially tolerated religion, which had never really happened before. It had never had official sanction. But it also seemed to indicate that this was going to be his religion, that he was going to be a Christian, although there's a lot of debates about whether he really was a Christian or not. Partly because at the time, a lot of times people like Constantine wouldn't be baptized until they were on their deathbed because they wanted to be baptized so all their sins would be forgiven and they wanted to do it when they didn't have any more time left to make any more sins. <laughs> so your timing was everything, of course. So it left a little bit of a question, you know, historically, was he really converted or not? But it became, in essence, the religion of the emperor. And he and his family began giving the church uh, essentially state backing and financing is the, is the first outcome from the Edict of Milan, is that all of a sudden the church, which has been self-supporting, self-sufficient, barely tolerated, if at all, sometimes persecuted, has been changed into a situation where it's not only the religion of the emperor, but the emperor is giving it his support and backing, uh, giving them all the best buildings, all the best locations, giving them lots of money, etc., etc. Um, and when that happened, that immediately led to the second big cons consequence for the church was a huge influx of nominals. All of a sudden, being a Christian was trendy. And a lot of people decided that it was expedient for politics or for business to have the same religion as the emperor. So a lot of people become Christian. But you have to understand, this is like not the way it was before. They haven't like maybe understood the gospel. They might not, they maybe never even heard the gospel yet. They haven't had an encounter with Jesus they have not interacted really with the message of the apostles. All they know is this is the wave of the future, so that's the way I'm going. And so all of a sudden, the church is no longer just a church of believers. It's a church with a few believers and a lot of unbelievers who have the name, but not the game. And that... Uh, poses many challenges from that point on. It also meant, number three, there was a, a new, new methods of evangelization began to be, come to the forefront in the way that the church evangelized. So one of the interesting things that happened is that shortly after this, over the next, say, three, four hundred years, entire nations were converting to Jesus, uh, particularly among the Germanic tribes that were um, living to the north of the Roman Empire and also 
among uh, the tribes in Britain and so forth. And, but what was happening was is that us, the king or the chief or whoever was deciding, again, often for political or strategic reasons, I want to be allied with the Roman Empire or I want to be like them or I want to emulate them. Um, deciding the thing to be is a Christian because that gives you benefits. And so he becomes a Christian and then instantly all his nobles become Christians and that automatically means that all the serfs who are under the nobles have to be Christians because you have to follow your king and your noble. They didn't have the idea of personal choice in the back of their mind. So again, even more people are coming to the faith but it's more a label rather than true understanding or interaction with Jesus. Then another thing starts to take place. Uh, Constantine moves his capital from Rome to a new city built on the Bosphorus, which is the waterway that divides Europe from Asia. And he builds a new city there called Constantinople. And that becomes the new headquarters of the Roman Empire. And because of the distances involved, and also because the empire was slowly losing its steam, losing control, and because there, there was a lot of migration. You think we have immigration problems now. The Romans were having huge immigration problems. Um, entire nations just deciding we're taking over here and moving in, and it was hard to keep them out. Um, what very quickly happened was that you ended up with kind of two capitals, and you had Rome, where they still spoke Latin, but in Constantinople, more what happened is the people there, and the emperor and his people, and the churches there spoke Greek. And they didn't understand each other. So that began to form uh, a divide uh, of language and distance and really different experiences that uh, would set the church up for misunderstanding and difficulty down the road. Um, so a growing distance between the Eastern and the Western church. And then another thing that started happening was a lot of sharp controversies and growing corruption. So you have to think about this. You have this situation where the church has been united because sort of we're all kind of under the gun of persecution and we're just trying to, you know, you know, do the job of Jesus and keep going. All of a sudden, this, the whole thing's changed. Now they're involved with power and money. And all of a sudden, there's all these theological controversies that erupt because now you can afford to argue about those points because you're not under threat. You know, when, when you're all under threat, it's sort of like, we gotta stick together or, you know, or we're gonna all be in trouble. But now that you, that's no longer needed, you can like start focusing on the things that you disagree about. And so there were a lot of sharp controversies that took place in that time period. You have a lot of people becoming a part of the church, again, who have a different background, a different experience, they come in a different way. And so they end up with some 
different ideas about theology that are coming from other places, from other philosophies. And so what began to happen was a whole long series of very intense controversies over doctrine in the church, which led to all the church councils. So some, something like the Nicene Creed would come out of a period of controversy like that, where the church is struggling with certain issues. How do we understand Jesus and, and how, you know, who he was and so forth? Um, and you have to understand, these being ancient people, they did not think that a, that a nasty conflict was saying something bad about somebody on Facebook. You know, you know, their idea of how to conduct a nasty conflict was to go burn down somebody's church or burn their house or, you know, kill people, etc. It was, it, it, there was a violent edge to the controversies often and complicated by the fact that the emperor meddled in all of this. And so sometimes if you were on the wrong side with the medal, the emperor... On a theological question, you could find yourself banished from the empire and having to go live in some, you know, godforsaken place away from your family and your livelihood and so forth. So um, that became a difficulty in the church and also growing corruption because all of a sudden now leaders of churches, bishops, um, begin to have political power and financial power that they didn't have before. So they're not just the pastors, the shepherds of their people anymore. They are also arbiters of political power in their cities. Which means then everybody wants to be a bishop. Which then means maybe you pay somebody to make your son a bishop who is in it for other reasons. And so, so you, you know, now you have the corruption that comes with the marriage to power is, becomes a part of the life of the church. In reaction to those things, then we got the rise of monasticism. Okay, so the church is, you know, now overwhelmed with nominal people who are not living the life that Jesus talked about. In many ways, you have church leaders who are, in some instances, corrupt uh, or more interested in political or financial gain than in spirituality. And so there's a reaction against that on the part of, you know, sort of people who are wanting to be serious about their faith. And the way that they reacted to that was sort of to swing the pendulum to the other extreme, and that was the rise of monasticism. So we go off into the desert, and we live away from society and all the corrupting influences of the cities, and we live a life of denial and asceticism where we, you know, we try to beat back the temptations of the flesh and, and uh, become holy. And, you know, live a special life because we want to be really devoted to Jesus. We don't want to be like all these other people who call themselves Christians. Which uh, sets up an odd kind of dichotomy in the church because then it becomes like if you're really holy and you're really serious about faith, then you go and do that. But, you know, otherwise you're in this other camp. 
And so there's not really sort of an in-between of, you know, you have a job and a family and so forth, but you really love Jesus and, and you're really following Jesus. That's not there so much as it was before. Um, then the church had a couple of huge challenges. One was the challenge of the barbarians who are began kind of nibbling away at the Roman Empire and eventually just almost making the whole, at least western part of it, disappear. Um, more and more barbarian tribes came in. At the beginning, they were mostly pagan. Eventually, most of them become some version of Christian uh, in the same way that I described earlier, where the chiefs or the kings become Christians, everyone else follows. But they literally come in and start pushing out the former people who used to live in these places. And uh, probably one of the key events was the first sack of Rome in 410 AD. So only a century after the Edict of Milan and Constantine, you now have Rome, which used to be the impregnable capital of the world, is now occupied by barbarian tribes who are coming in and raping and looting and stealing everything that they can. And, um, you know, all the old institutions of the Roman Empire are destroyed. Actually, the only thing left from the old Roman days are the churches. Church is the only thing that still endures in many of these places. That didn't happen overnight. It happened over a course of a couple hundred years, beginning around 410, a little bit before that. But eventually, all semblance of Roman control on that on the western part, so that would be the European part of, uh, of the empire, is completely gone. And then all that's left is the Greek-speaking uh, Roman Empire based in Constantinople, which usually is called historically the Byzantine Empire because Byzantium is also the same city as Constantinople. But they always thought of themselves as the Roman Empire to their very end in 1453. So... Um, the Roman Empire went on, but only in the eastern part. And uh, the thing you have to understand about that is, as that process happened, and it didn't happen overnight, again, it took a couple centuries, so that's like 200 years ago was, you know, not very long after the American Revolution. So that's, a, that's actually a pretty long time. It, it was a slow motion train wreck. Um, but at the end of it, you don't, the schools are gone. There's no more schools. The, the, the courts are gone. There's no courts. There's, you know, the, the armies are gone. The police are gone. The, the engineers who, like, did the amazing feats of engineering to bring running water into people's homes and even indoor plumbing and all that, they're all gone. All, all that stuff... It, all, all sort of the, the structures, the, the things that made the empire work are all gone. And you get more and more people who not only don't, don't speak Greek, but they don't speak Latin either. They speak their own original languages. They speak German. They speak French. They speak something else or the beginnings of those languages. Um, and so when they go to church, the service is in Latin. 
So now you have, so you, you have to get the picture. You've got a lot of people. The way they got there is a different direction. Their parents joined for political reasons. They got baptized as babies, so they were raised saying, you're a Christian. This is sort of their, who they are, but they don't actually understand what's being said at church because it's all in a different language. So, you know, and you, you can't read because you don't have a school, so you can't read the Bible for yourself. So you have a lot of ignorance and whatnot that arises. That's a whole different situation than what the church was dealing with at the beginning. And then in 610, Islam arrived on the scene. And uh, Islam arose in the Arabian Peninsula and swept through the whole area of the Eastern Church that was controlled by the emperor in Constantinople first, and then eventually through uh, all of North Africa and, and Spain. Um, and uh, Islam spread very, very rapidly. So all of a sudden, whole cities, whole nations are going over to Islam. Now part of it was sometimes militaristic, you know, uh, sometimes the Muslims' armies would come in and say, okay, let's see, you can become a Muslim, or you can die, or you can live as a second-class citizen from here on. But for a lot of people, it was just, again, politically and financially expedient to become a Muslim at that point. Their loyalty to Jesus was uh, thin. Um, a lot of people were already disgusted with the corruption that was going on. They didn't, it didn't seem like um, there was anything compelling here. The Roman Empire, Christianity is now wedded to the Roman Empire and it looks like it's going down. The Muslim Empire is going up. So who do you want to be with? And the truth is a lot of people not under duress decide to become Muslims during this time. Be sort of, again, out of reaction to what's happened. All of that is, which is to say that the, um, the marriage of the church to political power uh, wasn't all positive. <laughs> it, it, it caused a lot of difficulties, which is actually taking us a long time to shake off. In fact, we're only now um, some 1,500 years later, beginning to move out of the era of, uh, you know, where the church is supported and backed up by state power and influence. So uh, probably our children will be living in a situation more like that of the first 200 years of the church than what we've seen uh, in between. Okay, one other thing about this period of time is that there was a big decline after the Edict of Milan in the uh, practice of healing and other sign gifts. And uh, so whereas it was like normative and common when before Constantine and when, when the churches were sometimes under persecution, 
afterwards, it started declining in a major way. And there's several reasons why. Number one, there was a change in the popular view of God and of humanity. Um, when you live in a, in a, a time when everything stable is being shaken to pieces and nobody's in control, you, you can start to get a different view of God that is maybe more fatalistic and more negative, more distant. It felt like God was far away. You know, where is God, you know, when our cities are being burned and our children are being taken away as slaves, you know, and, and so forth. So people began to get a view of God as farther away, not close, but far. God is removed from our situation. He's not paying attention to us. And also, they began to get a different view of humanity. And largely, this is because of the view of humanity that was carried by the barbarians, who basically moved into Europe and ended up in control of Europe. Generally, their view of mankind was much more negative. Their value of life was much lower. Um, their, they didn't put as high a value on you know, a human being, on their life, on their potential. Uh, they did not think that you could rise above your circumstances. It was a more crass, violent, oppressive kind of viewpoint. So their view of humanity is also much lower. So if God is distant and people aren't that valuable, why, why bother with healing? So it starts, that's, that's one thing that starts causing it to decline. Another is uh, a change in philosophy among the people who are thinking. So at, at the top, uh, among the few educated people who are left, among, which would be primarily among church leaders, there was a shift in influence between two Greek philosophers. Most of the leaders in the church the first 200 years were highly influenced by a Greek philosopher named Plato. And pardon me, philosophers, because I am really going to oversimplify Aristotle and Plato. <laughs> but but uh, Plato basically had the idea that there was within mankind an ideal. There was an ideal man that... that um, uh, there, there was something good and redeeming about mankind about, and, and about the human body that was maybe fallen or corrupted, but there was something good to it. Um, and so then there was a, there was a place, if, if there's something good about the human body, then it's worth healing. You know, it, it, healing is a, an appropriate thing. It's like restoring it to the ideal um, so uh, the, the, the Platonic uh, philosophy worked really well with signs and wonders. But Plato was followed by another Greek philosopher named Aristotle who had a very different view of, of uh, humanity. His, his view was that there's really essentially nothing intrinsically good in mankind at all, that Mankind is amoral, uh, intrinsically hedonistic, um, um, that there's nothing really redeeming in sort of the nature, nature or the way that we're made. Um, and so he, 
he focuses much more on sort of the otherworldly aspect. So the church began shifting away from sort of the early Christian practice of we heal the sick and we feed the poor and all that, which is very this-worldly oriented. It starts shifting to an otherworldly orientation because of the influence of Aristotle because there's nothing good here, nothing worth redeeming here. And so that means at the time there's no focus on this. There's no value on, you know, helping people live the way that they live now. It's all just about get to heaven. And of course, some parts of the church still basically have that same viewpoint. It's all just about get to heaven and why bother doing anything about this life? Uh, why bother feeding the poor or healing the sick or any of that? Because we just want to get them in heaven. Um, third, there was a reaction to a movement of, of that styled itself as a prophetic movement called the Montanist movement. Now, the Montanist movement actually began about 150, so it started before Constantine, but it kind of went on as a sub-sort of minor movement for actually a couple centuries. Uh, it was, it's called the Montanist movement because the guy who started it was named Montanus. And they called what they were doing the New Prophecy and he had two female colleagues who called themselves prophetesses. And they were called, uh, their names were Prisca and Maxmila. And they were actually even more popular than he was. They were quite popular with certain people and very controversial. And the fundamental problem with them is that they began prophesying about doctrine. So as the church is trying to sort out all these theological controversies, which are now arising now that the church is no longer under persecution, these people are trying to prophesy their way through the con to the controversies. You know, sort of, we're going to prophesy, I'm right and you're wrong, or, you know, different doctrinal viewpoints. And the, the thing about that is, and the thing you have to remember, of course, is that the Bible teaches us that prophecy is for the comfort of, and strengthening of the church. That's what that gift is for. The gift of teaching is the gift that has the assignment and the authority to help the church sort out doctrine. And so when the prophets wander into doctrine, it always ends up in trouble. And that's exactly what happened. They went off into some crazy stuff that actually isn't backed by the Bible at all. But, you know, they were ignoring that and going by sort of their subjective thing and really misusing the gift of prophecy and, in fact, even taught that their prophecies superseded the teaching of the apostles. And so most of the church reacted against that. You know, seeing that abuse made them back into no use or at least suspicion of that kind of thing in the church. And so as a result, what had been normative in the church and normal uh, in the first couple centuries by the year 1000 starts going away. 
And then finally, um, well, not finally, number six. Oh, I'm not even up there. I'm only at number three. Let's go back. <laughs> number four. And I kind of alluded to this. They began to have a greater emphasis on the next life. And part of it was Aristotle, but also part of it was just the simple fact that this life was a mess. That there was no real hope in this life for a better life for most people. Um, everything that they had depended on for centuries was falling to pieces. And so when that's happening, uh, you start focusing on the next life. Um, number five, a decline in literacy plus liturgy without comprehension. So it's like kind of, as it happens, you know, what's, what's, what people aren't understanding what's happening in church. They're not, when the scripture is read, they don't understand it. Uh, they can't read the Bible in their own language. Even if it was in their language, they couldn't read it because they're, they haven't learned to read. They don't, they're not literate. Um, by about five or 600, most of the kings in Europe, the kings, okay, we're talking about the top of society, were illiterate. They could not read. Only a few select people from the church, priests and bishops, actually, were educated people who could read. It was very unusual, which is one of the reasons why lots of churches ended up putting up imagery in the churches that told a story. So the, the whole point of, say, the stained glass window is education. It's, it's sort of like trying to tell some sort of story from the gospel that people can grab a hold of. And, you know, that the, that the preacher can point to and say, you know, I'm talking about this, because that's all they got. They don't have anything else. And... Uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, you, if you don't have the words of the scripture, you know, and, and the words from Jesus, then how do you know about the Holy Spirit or healing or any of those things? And with that then began a sort of growth, number six, in fanciful and exaggerated stories. Okay, so what started to happen was people started coming up with sort of wild, sort of more legendary type stories about healings in the supernatural that are sort of clearly not real, you know, to an educated person anyway, because that's all they, they're not seeing the real thing. They don't, so you start getting focused on, you know, relics of saints and, you know, wild stories like that that people focus on because they don't have anything better, which just makes the few educated people you have back away from it even more um, and want to be, not want to be a part of that. And then finally, people began to associate miracles with special saints. In other words, people who are monastics, who are extra holy, who aren't normal people, they're the ones that do miracles. And... In fact, eventually, almost to the point where only dead saints do miracles. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's not something we associate with living people or with normal people. And so, where you started off with everybody who's following Jesus takes it as normal. We talk about Jesus and we feed the poor and we, and we pray for the sick. We've now come to a place where hardly anybody does 
And the only people anybody thinks are doing it are people who live a life that almost nobody else can live. And so as a result, all of those things decline in the church tremendously. So that takes us up to 1054. Um, so the, the period, those 700 years from 315 to 1054 are, uh, the church actually doesn't get a lot bigger uh, during that time period, which you might find surprising. It does not get a lot bigger. On the one hand, you have some of the, whole nations be converting on the one hand, but they're defecting on the other hand to the Muslims and other places. So all your defections are, are being, all your gains are being offset by defections. And a lot of the gains are not substantive gains um, because the church had lost track of sort of the whole element of personal conversion personal understanding of the gospel and interaction with Jesus as part of how you become a Christian. So 1054, there's the first big split uh, in the church between what we would call the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox. And it's a, it's a real split between East and West, uh, partly based on just language. They, they couldn't talk to each other in the same language very well. The, the, one, the Eastern group, which we would now call the Orthodox, they spoke almost Greek entirely and had a very particular viewpoint based on their experience. And the Western church, primarily based in Rome, spoke Latin. And uh, they also had a big difference about the role of the Pope in Rome because whereas... In earlier centuries, the Pope was the leader of the church in Rome, and there were other significant leaders of other major churches who would have equal authority and status, say the, the leader of the church in Constantinople, the leader of the church in Antioch, the leader of the church in Alexandria, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What began to happen in their isolation, because you have to understand these people are really isolated. They're thousands of miles apart, and there's no good way to travel and no safe way to travel, the Western church, based on Rome, begins to develop the idea, our guy is supposed to be the head of the whole church. And he's supposed to be in charge of everybody. And the other guys say, wait a minute, we were here first. We had a church in Antioch before you had a church in Rome. So why should you be in charge of us? And... Um, as a result, there's a major schism, 1054, that even to this day has not been completely eradicated. And that was the first major split among sort of one Catholic church. Now, there were other splinter groups uh, that we would now call heretics along the way, the biggest one being the Arians, uh, which at one point it seemed like they were going to prevail, but they didn't. The Arians would be sort of like the Jehovah's Witnesses today. So they would be more akin, uh, akin to Jehovah's Witnesses and their viewpoints. Um, uh, but eventually they, they faded away as more and more people like wrestled with the issues involved with that. So in terms of the main Orthodox Church that held to the sort of central creeds that they did agree on in the early years... 
uh, like the Nicene Creed. This is the first big split. And so from that we get what we call the Roman Catholic Church, which is, you have to put Roman on it now because it's only the ones that are following Rome. And then you have the Orthodox who uh, took their viewpoint. Now, um, in the West, we'll start focusing pretty much exclusively on the Western part of this, the Roman side of this. If you recall, uh, the empires disintegrated. You end up with various local chieftains and kings ruling small pieces of territory. Um, and the only real institution that's left that kind of... Uh, represents any kind of central authority is is the papacy is the church uh, centered in the papacy in Rome and a lot of times over time then you've got a lot of kings they remember the, how they became they became a part of the Christian church because of course of their political choices to adopt in and then their children and their grandchildren their great-grandchildren over time what happened was is that kings and other people gave land and property to the church as bequests in the hopes that this would gain them heaven. And so the church becomes more and more and more powerful and more and more rich because what you would do with the land, what the churches would do with the land, the bishops and the monasteries and so forth who were the ones given all this property was they would rent it out and live off the rents of the property that had been given to them. And eventually it involved enormous sums so that at, at certain points in medieval times, the church owned more than a third of all the property of any nation or that they were a part of. More than a third of all the property belonged to the church. And most of this property was the best property available and was income generating. So imagine if you had one church that owned a third of all the Fortune 500 companies. And that money is coming into the churches and it's entirely controlled by the leaders of those churches. And imagine what happens in that kind of situation. Who decides they want to go into being a pastor then? And so what proceeded to happen was that more and more you had leaders in the church who actually probably weren't believers at all. They actually had no respect for the scripture or the gospel or even Christian morality who were there for political and financial reasons. And eventually the church began selling positions. So if you wanted to be made a priest of a certain place, you would pay the person who was making the choice. If you wanted to become a bishop, you pay a certain amount of money to the cardinal to be made a bishop, and so forth, to the point where you would, and these are there are many documented instances of this happening, you would bribe all the cardinals so that you could be made a pope. And you would get the money back, of course, from all the money you would make, by being in control of all of this, this you know, network of financial and political power. Um, 
So there's a lot of corruption going on in the church. Uh, church offices being bought and sold. Uh, m- more than one pope who had children and grandchildren while they were pope. Um, uh, popes having orgies in the Vatican. You name it. Uh, uh, it was, you know, a, a rough period, shall we say. Uh, medieval times in the history of the church. Um, uh, then around uh, in the 1400s, one of the popes decided he needed to rebuild St. Peter's to make it bigger so that it could hold more pilgrims because pilgrims brought money. They would come and donate money to the church. He needed a bigger church that would attract a bigger number of pilgrims, but this church was going to cost them a great deal of money. And so he devised this idea, we're going to sell what are called indulgences. And what we're going to do is we're going to write these pieces of paper that give people freedom from a certain number of years in purgatory. Now, that requires me to explain purgatory, which is almost unexplainable, but we'll try. Um, it's, it's basically the idea that when you die, you don't go straight to heaven, but you go to a place called purgatory where your sins are punished for a certain amount of time, and then you get to go to heaven when you've paid enough for your sins. And I think part of it was a... a, a, a a way to resolve the issue, the, the the problem that we all sometimes struggle with, you know, well, like, is it fair if somebody who commits a few sins goes to hell forever? And so they they thought, well, I know what we'll do. We'll have purgatory, and they go to they go to a place and they suffer for their sins for a while. But then, they, when they've suffered enough, they get out, and they get to go to heaven. And that seemed to resolve the problem, except that. Of course, there's nothing from Jesus or the apostles about any such thing. But what, what they started doing was saying, okay, well, the, the Pope has power to forgive sins, so he can forgive sins in purgatory and shorten your time in purgatory. So maybe you won't have to be in purgatory for 500 years. Maybe you can be in purgatory for only 50 years or whatever. So depending on how many sins you went in with. And so... What they started doing was saying, you know, you can buy an indulgence, which is like a forgiveness to allow you to escape from a certain amount of time in purgatory. And so they sent out salesmen all over Europe selling indulgences for people to be freed from their sins. Now, I know to modern ears this may sound ludicrous, but it was a serious thing, and lots of people did it, and it raised a ton of money, and St. Peter's stands today (laughs) as witness that it worked. (laughs) However, there was a big cost, because there was a monk in Germany who learned Greek, and he began to read the New Testament in Greek. And when he started reading the New Testament in Greek, he read verses like the one we read at the beginning. For by grace you are saved through faith. 
not by works. And said, this doesn't fit with what's going on at all. His name was Martin Luther. And he and a lot of other people were fed up with the indulgences, with the corruption, with the uh, ignorance, the superstition, the political control, um, a long, long list of grievances that basically had been going on for some period of time, a long period of time in the church. And so 1517, Martin Luther nails 95 complaints to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and starts off a huge protest movement all across Europe called the Protestant Reformation. And a lot of rulers thought this is a great opportunity to be rid of this meddlesome pope who keeps getting in, uh, in the way. And so they joined in on the Reformation. I'm not always sure that their motives were 100% spiritual. <laughs> so it got quite a bit of momentum um, and swept across Europe over the next century in a powerful way. Now eventually, I, 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 wanna, I hasten to add, because of the Protestant reaction and sort of revolution, eventually the Catholic Church seriously began to engage in its own self-reformation. They called it the Counter-Reformation, and a lot of these abuses were, were uh, dealt with so that you know, the, the medieval church before Martin Luther doesn't look very much like the Roman Catholic Church today. Um, there was reform that has come um, since, but it began sort of as, it was, it was basically either we're going to have to do some reform or there won't be any Roman Catholics left <laughs> because everybody's going to Protestantism because, of course, people were really fed up with the situation. So, Protestant Reformation, I want you to, we need to understand, if we're going to understand who we are as a vineyard, some of the key tenets of the Protestant Reformation. And they had five things that they kind of took as their main calling card. The first one was by scripture alone. In other words, we determine truth by scripture alone. And by in saying that, what the Protestants are saying is not by philosophy and not by tradition. Because the Roman Catholic Church was using both philosophy and tradition to determine truth to the detriment of Scripture. So the Protestant says, we're not going to do that. Forget tradition. Our tradition in the last 500 years has been pretty bad. So not tradition, not philosophy, scripture alone. So this is the beginning of a reorientation of the church on the teaching of the apostles that hadn't been there since Constantine. Second, by faith alone. And that's huge because by faith alone means you're saved by faith alone. 
And when they're saying by faith alone, they're saying with that, not just by belonging to the church. Because the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church had been, you're saved just by being a Catholic. And Martin Luther and the other reformers said, no, you're not. It's by faith in Jesus alone, not by belonging to a particular church that you are saved. And not by works. So you're not saved because you do good works or because you give money to the church or any of that. That's not what saves you. It's faith only. Faith alone. Three, by grace alone. And um, that means not by human choice or merit. That God works to bring us to himself. It's by his initiative, not ours. It's not because we've deserved it, but only because God has grace on us that we have any salvation at all. So by grace alone. Number four, through Christ alone. Our salvation, our connection with God is through Jesus only. And by saying that, they're saying not priests, not through the priest, not through saints, not through any other mediators, not through Mary, not through the Pope, not through anybody else. It's through Jesus only, through Christ alone. And number five, glory to God alone, which means glory only to God, not to Mary, not to the saints, not to the angels. We don't give glory to anything else, only to God. And so when, we, when you look at that list, in that sense then, Vineyard is thoroughly Protestant. You know, by, you know we, we would kind of, very much be among the group of people who say, by scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, glory to God alone. In that sense, we stand in sort of the Protestant tradition. However, there's another perspective that's important to understand. Sort of another way of looking at this new division in the church and this sort of new development between Catholic and Protestant. And I call this Catholic versus Protestant values. Because apart from the, action, the main sort of theological issues that were behind the, you know, the uh, six alone, the five alone statements, there's another set of values that actually were feeding into this conflict and that are part of what distinguished Catholic from Protestant. So here's some of the difference. For the Catholic, the worship or the liturgy is primary. So if you go to a Catholic church, it's all about the mass, the liturgy, the worship as it were, and not that much about the preaching. Um, once in a while, you'll find a Catholic church where the preaching is really strong, but though there are the exceptions, not the rules, right? It's all about the worship, and that's the main focus. That's what you're there for. You're there for the Mass. You're there for the communion, the worship time. That's what you're there for. For the Protestants, preaching is primary. It's all about the preaching of the Word. So you would go to a Protestant church, and they'd have 10 minutes of singing, and two hours of preaching. Um, 
because it was all about the preaching. The, because they were, in a sense, reacting to sort of the, the previous problem of so many people who don't know the word and who don't know the gospel and don't know what Jesus said, don't know what he taught, don't know what the apostles taught. So like preaching becomes really important. People need to know the truth. So preaching becomes really important. Well, if you look at that, worship is primary, preaching is primary, where's the vineyard? Kind of smack dab in the middle, right? They're both, we're, we're kind of like trying to have both, all right? For the Catholic, the mystical or the spiritual is highly valued. So the sort of mystical side of life, the, the Catholics had various mystics and, and uh, uh, contemplatives who wrote, you know, who were the kind of people who became saints, um, that were a part of their tradition, people that they, they looked to, that, they, that experienced God. There was, the, the whole thing is centered around sort of the mystery, the spirituality of it. Even, even in the liturgy, you know, there's this sort of this air of mystery with, you know, smells and bells and, and you know, so forth. There's, you know, the, this is all a part of it. The, the, uh, for the Protestants, all of this was really suspicious. The, the, generally, the, the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther and Calvin and the others, they were very suspicious of that side of life because they were engaged in trying to recover, remember, by Scripture alone. We, we need only that. And the Catholic Church was actually trying to use their mystics and their saints against the Reformation, saying, well, we have these people with us and they're having these experiences with God, so we must be right. And so the, the, the Protestants be, developed a sort of a value that's very centered on the Bible and suspicious of the mystical or the spiritual. So where does the vineyard sit with that? Because we do a lot of stuff with the mystical and spiritual, and yet we like also talk about the Bible a lot, right? Again, more in the middle, not so decidedly one side or the other. The Catholic uh, value was sort of centered on the idea that salvation is found only in the church. Um, that it's in the community, in, in the, 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 that group that you find salvation. The Protestants wanted to reemphasize again what had been lost, the idea that salvation is found only by personal faith in Jesus. They emphasized the personal. And that kind of reflects this underlying value that the, the Catholic kind of leans to a communal perspective. Values more sort of the, of the communal point of view. Um, you know, whereas the Protestant tends to lean to more of an individualistic point of view. So uh, it's all about how you and you by yourself. It's, it's very individual, and there's not very much of a horizontal aspect to your faith or to your worship or your salvation. Where does the vineyard fit? Well, again, kind of more in the middle. There, there's, there's things about that communal perspective that we're trying to 
hold on to um, at the same time. And then lastly, the, the Catholic value system leans to a physical sensory expression of faith. So you walk into a Catholic church, and there's a ton of things to sense and experience and see. There's pictures and art and candles and smells and sounds and smells and you know, it's this huge sensory, you know, everywhere you turn. I mean, if you've been to the Sistine Chapel, you know, it's like, you know, huge sensory expense. You know, you walk into any of those places, very sensory, very experiential expression of faith. And the Protestants, what they did, they really leaned to what I would call an abstract philosophical expression of faith. It was all about the ideas, it was all about sort of believing the truth. So you walk into a Protestant church and there's nothing. It's white, plain, no decoration whatsoever, no pictures, no statues, no smells, straight back pews, you know, no candles, just plain. Nothing to distract you from the preaching of the word. See, so completely non-sensory kind of experience of faith. Well, where does that leave us? Because on the one hand, we do kind of believe in truth and, and that, you know, th believing the right theology does make a difference, but we certainly have a very ex experiential expression of our faith. There's a certain... We really appreciate sort of that other side uh, as well. Um, and are kind of, again, in the middle, trying to have it both ways. So when you think about this perspective, the vineyard is not so thoroughly Protestant as you would think if you were just looking at the straight theology that we just went through earlier. It's more of a middle way approach. And that's one of the reasons why people coming from a Catholic background find the vineyard so congenial. It's so easy to fit in because even though kind of in some ways it doesn't look like a Catholic church when you walk in here, there's other sort of hidden aspects that are actually reflecting some of those values that they maybe grew up with that are actually at work here even though we don't have all the smells and all the pictures that they have there is something there. And that's also one of the reasons why vineyard leaders like me often find ourselves in relationship, not just with Protestants, but also with Catholics as well, um, including Catholic leaders and priests. And one of, the, one of the highlights of my life, actually, is a meeting we had in Rome where on a Sunday morning in the Vatican, we had a meeting of vineyard leaders from around the world, and the preacher from the morning was the Pope's personal preacher who came in and preached for us. And it was a great morning. Um, and we could do that partly because we sit in a certain place of appreciating values from both sides. So that's the Protestant Reformation. Uh-oh, how are we doing? Okay, we got a half an hour to go. Am I right? This is supposed to be 90 minutes. 
Okay, all right, good. All right, so speeding up a little bit. Protestant right away split into a bunch of different directions. In fact, it never really was united. It, it, once Martin Luther put his 95 complaints on the door, everybody else jumped into it, and they weren't all on the same page from the, from the very get-go. It was, it was a sort of a, a mass uprising, but it wasn't organized. It was never organized. They were never unified. It was, so this graph makes it look like they split, but the truth is they never were together. <laughs> Um, they, they kind of started more separately anyway. And, and there's several key groups here that I, I want to talk just about a little bit. Um, one of the early spin-offs is what we call the Anabaptist movement. These, these, the Anabaptists emphasized to a very uh, great extent the idea of adult conversion and adult baptism. And so they, be called, they became called Anabaptists, which means baptized again. Because they believed that if you were baptized as a baby, that didn't count. That you needed to have your own personal conversion to Jesus, and then you need to be baptized as an adult. And so they were called Anabaptists. In general, they were pacifists, and they were um, not in favor of the marriage of church to political power. Um, which... Uh, shaped a lot of their perspectives and everything else, um, which also got them into a lot of persecution because at the time of the Reformation, 1500s and uh, 1600s, it was a given that uh, you were expected to follow the religious lead of your monarch. And if you didn't, you got persecuted. Well, the Anabaptists didn't buy that whole premise. Um, so they were often persecuted. And, and so... The Anabaptists we would know today would be people like the Mennonites, uh, like the Amish. Those, the, those are sort of the, uh, the Anabaptists of our time. Then, of course, you had the Lutherans. And, and interestingly, the, the Lutherans chose to keep a, a lot of the same kind of Catholic perspectives, but just jettisoning the, uh, the, the abuses and the works orientation. So, you know, the preaching of being saved by grace through faith, but not so much moving away to the extreme of Protestantism. So they would still have some of the same kind of liturgy, a little bit more of the sensory side would still be happening among Lutherans generally. Um, you know, sort of less, less radically Protestant. Um, but more, much more comfortable sort of with the state, with the marriage with the state. So uh, what, basically what happened is, you know, pretty much all across Northern Europe, basically the state government, the state religion just switched from being Catholic to being Lutheran. And uh, so if you were a citizen of Norway, you were Lutheran, period. Um, unless you were Anabaptist, and then they chased you out of the country. <laughs> Another group were, were, were the uh, Calvinists, uh, the, uh, the basically started by a guy named John Calvin. The Calvinists devised a different kind of approach, very austerely, very rigidly Protestant in their theological perspectives and also in the sort of value system, very on the Protestant side, a very tight 
intellectually sort of closed box uh, theological system. So uh, Calvinism is very logic based, uh, very tight um, in that respect. Um, and they would be, in part, the forerunners of groups like the Reformed Church, the, the Presby- various kinds of Presbyterian churches, uh, those kinds of groups would be Calvinists. But also, um, through a different way, which we'll see in, in a minute, uh, many sort of Baptists also have some of the Calvinistic perspectives. And then there's the Anglicans. Now, all of these other groups kind of became who they were sort of out of their own particular uh, theological and historical thought process and value system. Why that? But the Anglican uh, split of Protestantism had a completely different kind of genesis that... um, ended up being very uh, creative, although I don't think that's how it was intended originally. Um, What happened was that King Henry VIII was a good, loyal Roman Catholic, but he had a problem. His wife had no children. And as it became clear that she wasn't going to have any children, This posed a very serious political problem because he needed to have an heir. He needed to have a son who would be an heir because if he didn't, England would be likely to fall back into another era of civil war, which it had just come out of uh, under Henry VIII's father, which a civil war started because somebody died without an heir. And so he was desperate. And besides which, he was interested in somebody else. And, but you, can, you couldn't just like get a divorce and marry somebody else. You actually had to have permission from the Pope. The Pope basically had to declare that your previous marriage wasn't a real marriage, and then you could get married again. And so he asked the Pope to give him this permission to rule his first marriage invalid and allow him to get married again. But the problem was he was married to the sister of the monarch called the Holy Roman Emperor who controlled almost all of Europe and had his armies parked in Rome at the Pope's door. So the Pope didn't want to get him angry. And so he wasn't about to say, your sister's marriage is invalid because then he's going to have his armies down his throat. So he told Henry VIII, no. And I'm actually making about a 10-year story short, but (laughs) the answer was no. And so eventually Henry VIII came up with a solution. I will forget about the Pope. I'll become a Protestant. Only... The way we're going to work it is I'm going to become the new pope of the English church, as it were. I will be the head of the church, and no bishop or archbishop or pope can tell me what to do. Then I can give myself permission to divorce my wife and marry whoever I want, which he proceeded to do six more times. 
or five more times, I think. And uh, so it wasn't for any theological reason at all. It was so the king could get divorced and marry somebody else. And so what you ended up with was sort of a Catholic church in England that wasn't Catholic. In, because it didn't follow the Pope. And that's what we call Anglicanism. Or when it became to America, they called it Episcopalianism because they didn't want to call it Anglican because that sounded like saying it was English and during the Revolutionary War, that was bad. <laughs> so you didn't want to be called English during that point of time, so they changed it to Episcopalian, which basically just means we have bishops. <laughs> so the Anglican Church began under Henry VIII. But very quickly, there were influences from the rest of the Protestant Reformation that began to come into England and sort of change people's viewpoint under Anglicanism and take it off in a whole bunch of different directions. Complicated by the fact that he had three children. One of them was a daughter by his first wife, who was thoroughly Roman Catholic, and then one was a daughter by uh, another wife who was thoroughly Protestant and heavily influenced by Luther. And then finally he had his son who was born by a woman who was sort of Protestant, but I think mostly was just opportunistic. At any rate. Um, so a lot of other influences started coming in. And within a century or less, several other groups began coming out of the Anglican Church. The first one is be a group that we would call the Puritans. And they were called the Puritans because they were concerned that the Reformation wasn't pure enough, that they hadn't reformed enough. All we did was change the head. We changed from a pope to a king. But nothing else has changed. And they felt like the church needed to be more pure. It needed to get more cleaned up. It needed to be reformed more fully. And a lot of them were influenced by Calvinistic theology, primarily. And so they were called Puritans. And um, eventually, many of the Puritans emigrated to America because they were persecuted on, under um, a couple of uh, English kings and queens because they weren't following the prescribed state church, which was the Anglican church. They were nonconformists. So a lot of them came... Uh, to America, others stayed and tried to reform the Anglican Church. And so you have a whole stream of Anglicanism in England that is not very Catholic in nature. They are influenced by the, by the Puritans and would be thought of as more sort of evangelical. Um, then, oh, I went, we went out of order. Uh, let's see if that's... I want to do this. All right, let's. We'll come back to the Puritans in a minute. Okay. There was another group called the Quakers, which uh, started by a guy named George Fox. And uh, 1647. And they were an outlier. They were not like any of the other groups. Um, here's some of the things 
that were true about the Quakers. There is uh, something of God in everybody, and each human being is of unique worth. Which, if you think about that, that sounds a lot like everybody gets to play. Right? Number two, the Quakers believe the inner light of the Holy Spirit is primary in finding truth. Now, that's a very unprotestant point of view. Okay, So the Quakers' approach to finding truth was not so much to search the Scripture. It was wait for the inner light of the Holy Spirit. Uh, coming out of their idea that every human being had the Spirit. The Quakers had no preachers, no official leaders, and no sacraments. So if you walked into a Quaker meeting, there was no one leading the meeting. Okay, um, And you can still find meetings like this among Quakers today. You walk in, nobody's leading, nobody's convening, nobody even says, we're starting now. You just come in and everybody's silent and they sit in a circle and you all wait for the move of the Spirit. And you might be sitting in silence for, oh, 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes before somebody feels moved enough to say something. Um, and it could be anybody. Uh, so no preachers, no official leaders, no sacraments. They believe that the kingdom of God is now. Um, which is very interesting if, you just, if you're catching on. It's an early precursor of something that's going to come up again in vineyard history. Kingdom of God is now. And they were among the earliest opponents of slavery, reform of prisons, uh, being for reform of slavery. I mean, let me say this right. Early opponents of slavery, for reform of prisons, and so forth. Because, again, they believed every human being had ultimate value and so forth. They had a high view of that. Um, in the 1800s, 200 years later, there were several splits among the Quakers, and at that point in time, some of them adopted some of the structures and ideas of Methodism, which we haven't talked about yet, including the use of pastors and preachers. And you might think of them as more sort of the evangelical Quakers, so they started preaching, doing more preaching, more having more established leadership, and that actually is the branch of Quakerism out of which John Wimber came. So it's important to realize here that John Wimber, who started the vineyard in, in many ways, um, was uh, a Quaker. And the thing about the Quakers is they were not very tied in to the value system or even the theology of conservative Protestantism. They, were, they didn't fit with the Catholics, they didn't fit with the Protestants, they really didn't fit with anybody. They were off on their own little trek all by themselves. All right, back to Anglican Episcopalian. The Puritans, we, I mentioned already, out of the Puritans we got the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists. Many of the first Presbyterians who came to America became the Congregationalists of our day. And then, most importantly, the Baptists. One branch of the Puritans became what we call the Baptists, beginning about 1610. And they began re-emphasizing four important things. One, the necessity of a personal experience of being born again. Two, only professing believers should be baptized. Three, baptism should be by total immersion if possible. And four, autonomy of local congregations, which is very radical because 
It's the first time, apart from the Quakers, where a local congregation is self-governing. Always before, they were always under a bishop or, or something like that. So they began emphasizing those things. And as such, the Baptists were really the first to begin to introduce the idea that there needed to be some sort of personal conversion experience. First time that had been really emphasized in a significant way since the early years of the church, since, the, since Constantine. Um, all right. <clears throat> the Baptists were really involved in a lot of the Great Awakenings in America in the early 1800s. Um, I, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but America was, of course, except for the religious refugees like the Puritans and the Quakers, was primarily settled by, you know... Uh, desperate people who were trying to get away from a, from a past in England or elsewhere. Um, a lot of people who first came to America were not very religious in their viewpoints. Um, and for a long time, there weren't very many churches. And it was kind of a Wild West kind of a situation in America. And then came the Great Awakenings, um, which the Baptists were key, a key part of. And uh, a lot of people uh, came to faith in those times, moved towards faith. Uh, it was an important part of what made America what it is now. Um, but in the mid-1800s, after the Great Awakening, a new doctrine began to arise, which became very important because it ended up affecting almost all of the conservative Protestants, particularly in America, um, but not the vineyard. And it's called dispensationalism. And it's a whole sort of system of theology and how you understand and how you read the Bible. It originated with this Baptist guy named John Darby, but it was popularized and became universalized because there was a guy named Schofield, who took this system and made it into the notes of a Bible called the Schofield Bible. So like every single page would have this system's approach of interpreting that page. And it was published widely by teachers such as D.L. Moody and others to the point where like it was very hard to find a conservative Protestant in America who was reading any other kind of Bible than a Schofield Bible. And everybody is reading the Bible, and the notes at the bottom that tell you sort of what it means are all from the dispensational system. So it was popularized and universalized through the Schofield Bible. Dispensationalism has um, five key elements to it. And the first one is that God relates and works in different ways in different epics, which they call dispensations, and that's where the name come from, different dispensations of history. So it would take like one segment of the Bible and say, well, that's how God dealt with people in this time period, but that doesn't apply now. That was only for them. And they have as many as eight or nine different dispensations. They've got the whole Bible divided up into these different dispensations. And it's like this part applies to this, and this part applies to this, and this part applies to this. And God is working in different ways in different epics. So you've got it all divided up. And it kind of 
works against the unity of the Bible and also the unity of God himself. Because it's like he's changing from time period to time period. Number two, dispensationalism taught that the church will be secretly taken up into heaven, called the rapture. Okay, this may start to sound familiar to you. Secretly taken up into heaven, preceding a great tribulation, then Christ will return to set up a 1,000-year literal reign on earth after the fact. Now, this uh, point of view is something that began you know, in the 1830s, but that's not how anybody in the church understood sort of what the Bible said about the future before then. It's, it's not the only way to read it. Um, and so if the church is being secretly taken up to heaven, which is then followed by a great tribulation, which essentially destroys the earth, and then Christ is going to come back and set up a thousand-year reign and miraculously restore everything, then why take care of anything now? <laughs> you see. Number three, the nation of Israel is distinct from the church. And the time of the church is a parenthesis or a temporary interlude in the process of God's of Israel's prophesied history. In other words, in dispensationalism, all of history is not about the church at all. It's about Israel. And the church is an afterthought, almost, a parenthesis. Uh, something's going to pass away. Israel is the main subject. Um, this is why many conservative evangelicals today are the primary supporters of the state of Israel now. Because it's coming out of this theological perspective. It's, it's a different view of the place of Israel and the church. Number four, they believe that God will one day literally fulfill all the promises to a nation of Israel, including having this nation include all the land promised in the Bible and the restoration of a third temple, which may sound familiar. And number five, the sign gifts, in other words, healing, prophecy, etc., etc., ceased with the end of the age of the apostles. Never mind that, of course, that it didn't cease at the end of the age of the apostles historically, that it went on for another 200 years. Don't bother us with those details. It was, you know, so their view is that the signs, healing and prophecy, et cetera, et cetera, well, that's, that belongs to a certain dispensation, but that's not part of the picture anymore. That's gone. It's stopped. So, um... That's dispensationalism. And what started among the Baptists is the dispensationalism spread actually through all kinds of other groups, um, um, even, even those who weren't Baptists. And I think, of course, this dispensationalism is a dead end theologically. It, it ultimately uh, doesn't work out very well. It's falling out of favor now. Um, and let me just point out that in vineyard theology, there's only two ages. The current age and the age to come. That's it. Um, that vineyard's theology is not dispensational at all. We're not dispensationalists. And it's important to understand that as we go. Okay, so finally, back out of Anglicanism, 
we have the Quakers, the Puritans, and then the Methodists. Methodists began with John Wesley in 1738. And the question that kind of gave rise to Methodism was the question of, how does the grace of God change us? Um, what should that look like? You know, having been saved, how do we now live? Does it make any difference? You know, do we, do we, when we experience God's grace, do we just keep living the same old way? Or does something change? And the Methodists felt that it was important that there be some, that there should be a change. Some of their key ideas, number one, logic and reasoning are important in our faith. The Methodists were very famous for being very logical and systematic about stuff. That's why they got called Methodists, because they had a method. <laughs> and they were very methodical. Um, number two, Christians should strive to achieve holiness in life. In other words, and, and I think you have to understand that um, among Catholics and many Protestants, uh, the idea of like making an attempt to live a holy life or to conform your life to the teachings of Jesus was not part of the picture. They didn't think that that was important. Um, as long as you were saved, as long as you had your ticket to heaven, that's all you needed. And you could live any old way you want on you know, hell on earth in the meantime. But the Methodists said, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. You know, we, we think you should, there should be if you're really empowered by Jesus, if you're really converted by Jesus, there should be some change. There should be some, you should actually be a follower of Jesus. You should you know, show some holiness. Um, three, the Methodists emphasize that we're saved through a personal decision to trust in Jesus. Now, how can I explain this? Uh, before this time, people felt either you're, either they felt that you were born to be a Christian or that you were saved by being baptized or they felt that it was something that came to you um, that just suddenly you knew you were saved. It was, it was like an inner conviction that you knew that you were saved, uh, which was kind of uh, how the Puritans looked at it. It's sort of like you're, you're either one of the saved or not, but, the, but there's, it's not like you do certain things to get there. It's more like you just come to know that you are saved. The Methodists said, no, you actually need to make a decision. Remember, they're, they're, they're big into logic and reasoning and, and that they feel like it's not just something that happens to you. No, there's a decision that needs to be made. You need to make a decision. And so the whole idea of dis making a decision to follow Jesus, that comes from the Methodists. They uh, also believe that engaging in good works and mission is expected of all disciples. So the Methodists were sort of Huge, uh, hugely, not only into personal evangelism and conversion, but also social welfare and justice issues. And finally, and this is interesting, they're among the first to kind of really emphasize this since the, the days of the early church, small groups are important tools for growth. And the they had, uh, they called them classes and they were small groups of maybe three to five people, and they had a, a very set system of how you ran the class, and it was designed to help you grow in your spirituality. Um, they also participated in the Great Awakenings, but they had much 
more extensive follow-up system because they had this whole small group class system of follow-up. And they spread very rapidly, particularly in America, all over the country. So it's very difficult in the United States to find a small town that doesn't have at least one Methodist church in it um, because they really got around. Now, the Methodists, and we're almost to the end here, out of the Methodism came another movement which kind of took Methodism one step further called the Holiness Movement. Began around 1836 from some of sort of the uh, awakening uh, camp meetings and so forth. They began to emphasize more holiness and therefore they, they called them the Holiness Movement. And they actually believe that it's not just a decision. Um, first of all, they believe that the first work of grace is salvation from sin. So there's a work of grace that God does in your life. That's salvation from sin. But they believe there's a second work of grace, which they call entire sanctification or entire holiness, which you experience. It's an experience that you have. And it cleanses you of the tendency to commit sin, enabling you to live a completely holy life. So that the Methodist problem of how do we get people to actually live this out, the holiness movement says, well, it's not just by the classes and the method, but there actually needs to be an experience of the Holy Spirit that happens to you that makes you live a holy life and then that holy life would be characterized by avoidance of alcohol, smoking, dancing, and otherworldly pleasures. Um, so they began to introduce some new ideas into the picture. The idea, first of all, that there was this thing, this, that you actually needed to seek a specific encounter with the Holy Spirit. And that there was something life-changing that could happen after salvation. And it's, it ends up setting up uh, something that's going to be important in the vineyard and will change, actually, ultimately, the whole church.